Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So back in our Boston Massacre podcast, we talked uh, pretty extensively about the vast difference between how people wrote about the event in the American colonies and how people wrote about it in England. So basically, Paul Revere, Samuel Adams, and others in the colonies wrote about the Boston Massacre as an outrage that was perpetuated by a tyrannical government on innocent people, while, on the other hand, uh, folks who were loyal to the British government or living in England generally wrote about it as, quote, the unfortunate incident in King Street involving a bunch of rabble-rousers who were disloyal to the crown. And so one of our favorite listener mails came in the wake of this you remember. I do. It was from Andrew, who lives outside of London, and wrote to us about the tone of Revolutionary War lessons in England. And after we read Andrew's letter, we got so much email. Like a landslide. It's a landslide of email. <laughs> uh, many of these were in all capital letters, and some of them questioned our intelligence and our memory of our own history classes, because neither we nor Andrew's letter talked about the idea of no taxation without representation. So... That, that We didn't talk about it because that, that wasn't the point, uh, right? The point was to talk about what the tone of uh, revolutionary, revolutionary war history is like when taught in England. Like, that was why right. we read it. Um, and the, the messages that we got about it weren't all rude. <laughs> <laughs> no, many of them were very insightful. And, yeah, many know. of them were thoughtful. O- only some of them were rude. But they all did seem to s- sort of labor under the same misapprehension, which was that the root cause of the Revolutionary War was that the American colonies were paying taxes to the crown and not being represented in Parliament. We got so many emails that boiled down to this sort of core idea uh, that it seemed like we really needed to do a whole episode on it because uh, there were a lot of causes of the uh, of the American Revolution. Yeah, it's really a disservice to say it's that one thing. Yeah, because it's there are a lot of moving parts, as there are to almost any political situation like that. Like, there's very rarely just one thing that catalyzes something on the level of a revolution. Right. So uh, today we are going to talk about 13 causes of the American Revolution, and this is not all of the causes. It's just 13 of them that I thought would be good to talk about. Uh, and only one of them was the one that we got uh, all that email about. So that's where we're going to start with number one. Yes, uh, taxation without representation. That was a factor. So the colonists in North America were being taxed by the government, but they were not directly represented in Parliament, and that is entirely true. And there were people who pointed out that by being taxed but not represented, colonists were really being denied a basic right that was granted to other British subjects, Many years before the revolution even started. Yeah. This was just like one of those things like, hey, this is not okay. Right. Way before things got to the level that we called the revolution. Right. So there's also a common misperception among Americans that what the colonists were missing out on was basically the same thing as a seat in Congress today. And while Congress in the United States does have some stuff in common with the House of Commons in Parliament, uh, being that they are both made up of elective representatives, Parliament was, at this point in history, a little different from Congress today. 
The House of Commons was mostly about protecting the interests of the crown and keeping the king's peace. And it looked after its own interests, which were the interests of the landowners who had been elected. Um, and it pretty much ran the show when it came to taxation. But serving in the House of Commons was mostly, at this point, about power and prestige and not about influencing policy or influencing huge changes in the government. And on top of those differences, uh, while no taxation without representation did become a rallying slogan that was part of the revolution, a huge part of the colonial protest was really about the taxes themselves. Before people started deliberately organizing resistance to British rule, the idea that they were not being represented in the government was not really top of mind for a lot of people. Their their beef really was one about cash. Right. And that brings us to reason number two, taxes. Full stop. Um, before the War of Spanish Succession, most of Britain's income came from taxes on land. But wars are extremely expensive, and so the government had to find other ways to make money. Like we just said, the people who were running the taxation show in the House of Commons were all landowners. They really did not want to be raising a bunch of more taxes on their land. They would be shooting themselves in the foot financially if they did that. And that's where excise taxes on specific items came in. So many of them that they eventually brought in more money than taxes on land. There were also trade duties, which were more lucrative the more British government traded with other nations. So there still was not enough money, especially after the end of the French and Indian War, which was fought between France and Great Britain. The French and Indian War was sort of the American arm of the Seven Years' War, and as its name suggests, it was very long. It was also very expensive. And by the end, Britain wound up in control of all of North America east of the Mississippi, including what is now Canada. It also wound up with a huge amount of debt, which only got worse as the colonies slid into the economic depression that followed the end of the war. So all of this new territory was also a whole lot more expensive to maintain and defend, and it required a standing army that Great Britain itself had never really needed on British soil because it was separated from the rest of Europe by water. So the government used taxes in the colonies to try to raise money to pay off this debt, saying that it had fought the war in order to keep the colonists safe. And the colonists uh, really were not buying that line, saying that, no, Britain had fought the war to expand its own empire. And even if they had been represented in Parliament, the colonies would still have objected to these taxes on the grounds that they were being made to foot the bill for a military action that they did not ask for, uh, and because they created an economic hardship. And just on principle that they were taxes that people living in Britain were not having to pay, they were just for the colonists. Yeah. Okay, so number three, the Sugar Act. So the Sugar Act was part of this whole plan to save the British economy through taxes. Uh, It was really called the American Revenue Act of 1764, and it expanded a previous Sugar and Molasses Act, which had required a sixpence tax per gallon of imported molasses. The Sugar Act actually reduced the tax to three pence per gallon, but it took steps to actually enforce that tax, which the colonies had become quite good at evading through smuggling. This added a slew of oversight and bureaucracy to importers and exporters, and it sparked skirmishes with merchants on one side and the Navy and customs officials on the other. 
It's tempting to think that the people protesting these taxes were all patriots that were angry about an unjust government. But the reality is that a lot of these merchants, and we use the air quotes there, were really angry that their illegal smuggling business had, you know, fallen on some difficulty. Yeah. They were going to have to work a lot harder to keep it going. Yeah, it just got a lot harder to do an end run around the law <laughs> with, with, with your molasses, which was important for making rum. Um, the Sugar Act also did implement new taxes on sugar, coffee, printed calico, other goods. And these taxes hit the middle and upper classes the hardest because they were the ones who were using these goods the most. Uh, the Sugar Act also really disrupted the colonial economy because all the trade restrictions that were put in place to try to, you know, cut the smuggling down um, really just had a big effect on where the colonies could sell their exports. So on top of hitting people in their wallets, the whole thing rankled, uh, disrupted the greater economy, and led to people boycotting British goods, which angered the British government enormously. So number four in our magical list of causes of the revolution is the Currency Act. So this same year, the Currency Act was passed, and it was an attempt to standardize currency in the colonies. There were no known gold or silver mines in North America at the time, so the colonies couldn't mint their own coins. They were printing paper money instead, but this money had not been standardized, and the different currencies all had different values and rules. So it's not a big leap to imagine what a confusing state that would be. Yeah, obviously that was not going to be workable. (laughs) For very long to have all these different paper monies that were not, you know, no, my money is worth this much. Well, yeah. my money's worth this much. Yeah, like, like having a bunch of incompatible money was not gonna to to work. So what the currency act did, it it, it meant well, <laughs> but it abolished all of the currencies that the colonies had created and instead put in a, a monetary system that was based on British pound sterling. Because the colonies had a huge trade deficit with Great Britain, this whole deal wound up working out vastly in Great Britain's favor, which also made the colonies really angry. And because the Sugar Act and the Currency Act hit right at the same time as people started to really feel the effect of the economic depression that was following the French and Indian War, the colonists' perception was also that they had a huge negative impact on their personal lives. The common conclusion was that the reason nobody had any money anymore was all these new taxes and not just the inevitable post-war decline that happens any time a war ends. Right. So that brings us to numbers five and six, which we've talked a little bit about before, the Stamp Act and the Townsend Revenue Acts. Um, we're not going to go into huge detail about either of those or about the Boston Massacre, since we just covered all of that in our Boston Massacre episode. But they were still important factors in the revolution. So if you did miss the episode on the Boston Massacre, the Stamp Act and the Townsend Revenue Acts were both deeply unpopular tax acts that sparked everything from boycotts to violent protests. The Boston Massacre was an altercation between the colonists and the British regulars that led to the deaths of five people, and it happened in the wake of these two acts. And the Stamp Act in particular was important, not just because it continued to stir up distrust to the British government, but because opposition to it really united many of the colonies for the first time. Although the king and parliament were technically in charge, the colonies had been more or less governing themselves, and they didn't have any central connection point. And the response to the Stamp Act actually changed that. Yeah, it gave it basically people built up networks 
and, and better ways of communicating with each other, better ways of organizing themselves. The Stamp Act also spawned the formation of groups uh, that it just intended to protest and and combat its implementation, including the Sons of Liberty, which is uh, the, the best known of these groups. After the Stamp Act was repealed, the Sons of Liberty and these other groups turned their attention to other issues with the British government and trying to spread awareness about uh, things that needed to be changed, organizing protests, all of this kind of stuff. So number seven is the Tea Act. And unlike all of these other acts, the Tea Act was not about a new tax, although the tea involved was taxed under the Townsend Revenue Act, which already existed. Uh, Parliament passed it on May 10th of 1773, but it took a while for news of it to reach the colonies at all, and even longer for its full text to be printed in a newspaper so people could actually see what it said. Basically, the East India Company had a lot of tea. It had more tea than it could sell very well, and it also had other financial problems. So Parliament gave it a monopoly on selling tea to the colonies. There were also other provisions in this act that were meant to help prop up the East India Company and allow it to undercut the prices of any other tea importer. The colonies interpreted this as tyranny, and ports refused the shipments from the East India Company or uh, let them just rot on the docks. In Boston, a group of men disguised as Native Americans dumped the tea into the harbor, a protest known today as the Boston Tea Party, which there's a whole episode on in our archive. So, Holly, would you like to take a second and take a take a little break from talking about all these causes of the American Revolution and instead talk about a word for our sponsor? That sounds grand. Okay, so let's get back. We have several things under the same umbrella now. This is reasons 8 through 12. The Intolerable Acts, also known as the Coercive Acts. There are lots of different names for all these acts and lots of different ways of arranging them into a list. But basically... This is the, an umbrella term of the government's response to all the protesting, boycotting, skirmishing, and the like that had been going on in the colonies, especially in Boston. And uh, it included specific uh, acts that w- were meant to be punishing and to try to quell all of this dissent. The Boston Port Act closed the port of Boston entirely until the East India Company was repaid for all the tea that had been dumped in the harbor during the Boston Tea Party. Boston had become one of the most prominent opponents of British rule, and closing the port was intended to cut it off from the other colonies, thus curtailing its influence. Because so much of the Massachusetts economy relied on shipping through the Boston port, this really had the potential to be economically disastrous. And it also had the opposite of the intended effect, because the other colonies rallied around Massachusetts and they started bringing in supplies. The next of these acts was the Massachusetts Government Act, which effectively disbanded the government of Massachusetts and put it under direct control of the crown under a military government. And it also forbade town meetings and other assemblies. Uh, I had a history teacher in high school (laughs) who said this was basically Britain putting Massachusetts in a timeout. Uh, Really, that's a good way to sum it. It's flip. But yeah. I I agree with that kind of assessment. Like, you were bad. You sit and think about what you've done. Uh, uh, the Administration of Justice Act gave British officials charged with committing capital crimes while doing their duties in Massachusetts the right to have their trial moved to England or another colony. The British point of view on this was that uh, this was to ensure that they would get a fair trial. And the colonists' point of view on this was that this would ensure that they could get away with it. 
Yeah. But now we come to the Quartering Act of 1774, which was similar to an earlier Quartering Act, but had also made people really angry. It required the colonists to basically provide for all of the troops' needs, including their provisions, housing, fuel, and, and their transportation. This was like being taxed some more, except instead of directly giving money, they were having to pay for all of this stuff and for building barracks. And if there were no barracks or other housing available, people had to house soldiers in their homes. So you can conclude how much this upset people by the fact that the Third Amendment to the Constitution prohibits this entirely in peacetime. The only rights more important by uh, going by Bill of Rights order are all the First Amendment protections of speech, freedom of religion, and that kind of thing, and the Second Amendment freedom to keep and bear arms. The Quebec Act awarded territory and fur trading in the area between the Ohio and Mississippi rivers to Quebec. This made this part of what had been English colonies French instead, and also Catholic. Protestant colonies in the area began to fear for their freedom of religion, and this whole act was meant to win favor with the French, but instead, it just infuriated the colonies. It it probably did get some favor with the French, but at what cost? So, uh, various lists, just as as a side note, various lists of the intolerable or coercive acts, some of them leave out the Quartering Act uh, or the Quebec Act for various reasons. You will find you will find things that say that there were four intolerable acts and and they leave out one or the other of those. Yeah. So um reason number 13 is kind of a weird umbrella. There were there's things we've just we've been talking about concrete things, like concrete activities and specific laws, like but, steps that were taken yeah by the British government yeah. that negatively impacted yeah. The colonies. Or by the colonies to, uh, to protest what the government was doing. Correct. But knitting this all together was reason number 13, which was a bunch of vague social and political factors that sort of tied all of these things together. So the colonies were being run at this point like a monarchy, but there really wasn't an aristocracy the way there is in a typical monarchy. There were certainly some wealthy people, but they didn't have that whole system of titles and clout and corresponding responsibilities that the aristocracy in Britain did. Yeah, there's kind of a weird middleman layer (laughs) between the crown and parliament and the people that didn't exist in the colonies, and it, it made that... That system of government kind of weird. It also contributed to the colony's general lack of respect for authority. Uh, while the purpose of government in Britain was mostly to maintain the king's peace, the colonies were so removed from the king that they didn't really feel the need to be beholden to a government that had that as its ultimate end. And there were... Uh, more people who owned property in the colonies, and there was much more religious diversity than there was in England. And this made for a completely different balance of power and religion than uh, England and Great Britain were experiencing. And this set up a disconnect between the government and the people. Yeah, the, the you know, parliament and and the crown were more like things were a little more homogenous in England specifically. Yeah. You sort of branch out into more of Great Britain. There's a little more diversity that the. the in the colonies, it was a lot more all all over the place in terms of all of that. Um, the constant presence of troops also perpetually stoked anti-British sentiment. Uh, 
Since Great Britain had not really had much of a standing army in peacetime, this constant presence of soldiers was a reminder that the colonists were being treated differently from people in England. It really rankled. And as the Boston Massacre showed, having armed troops constantly in proximity to citizens who were angry at them being there was basically a powder keg, always ready to explode. There was also this whole problem of long communications delays, and they ran all through the lead up to the revolution. And it's entirely possible that today's communication methods would have diffused some of the tensions, since either the colonies or Britain would have been able to react to things quickly rather than allowing them to fester. Yeah, like Parliament would would uh, pass a law and it would take months for the colonies to hear about it. Colonies would react to something and it would take a long time for uh, for the government back in Britain to hear about it. And during these long periods of time between when the thing happened and when people found out, stuff would just kind of fester. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can imagine uh, it happens between one person and another sometimes where, you know, you'll leave someone an email or send them a text and say something and they you don't hear back right away and you get frustrated and think that they have ignored you or they're angry and it's right. not. It's just like the community. So if you expand that out over months in this political climate. Yeah, well, and if you even think about like, uh, like I just this week had an email that got crossed where a thing got answered while I was typing my answer and I was like, this, I cannot imagine how much more difficult it would have been to have productive relations with some, you know, with a government on the other side of the ocean when it took months. Yeah. That long for for direction to move from one place to another. So as the colonies got together to resist British rule and work out problems for themselves, uh, putting together their own communications networks convening things like the First and Second Continental Congress, they were basically building a blueprint for self-governance. So the, the, colonial, the colonial response to all the things that, that the government was doing was gradually putting pieces together of the colonies having their own government instead. So by the time the first shots were fired at the battles of Lexington and Concord, uh, the Revolutionary War was inevitable. And having had representation... Uh, in British Parliament would not have stopped that. So that's why taxation without representation really falsely summates it under one umbrella. Yeah, it was definitely an important thing, but it was definitely not the only thing. Yeah. Uh, and especially before people started, you know, educating one another about the whole issue of representation at all, there were plenty of people who were like, man, these taxes are awful. I don't want to pay them. I'm angry. Um, to, to wrap all this up, The other comment that we get anytime we talk about the revolution is that we shouldn't think of it as us versus them. Uh, The the thread sort of continues that everyone was English, so it was all us. And that's not really accurate either. The English were the majority of people in the colonies at this point. The next largest population group was slaves. And then following slaves, there were huge groups of Scotch-Irish and German immigrants, as well as immigrants from Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and other European nations. So this was not a homogenous group of English people on one side of the ocean versus the other. There was a lot more diversity going on, a lot uh, a lot of different influences on how people thought and what people felt about the things that the government was doing. So um, it is kind of appealing to think of it as being us 
on both sides, but really a lot of people in the colonies were not English at all. Yeah. Even if they were, you know, at this point, technically citizens uh, under the crown. Yeah. They, you know, maybe newly arrived from Germany with a totally different religion than anything practiced in England. So, yes, a complicated political and social situation. It is. That really can't be summed up as any one cause. No. Yeah. <laughs> do you also have some listener mail for us this go around? Yes, I do. Perfect. Uh, this is from Ginger. Ginger says, Dear Tracy and Holly, first, like everyone says, I'm a big fan of the podcast. It's really great. Second, I'm a reporter who works in the U.S. Capitol, so I was excited during the recent Pueblo Revolt episode when I learned that Pope's statue was in the Capitol, so I set out to find it. I'm sad to report the statue was no longer located in Statuary Hall, which means I couldn't confirm if it once had its back turned to a mural of Christopher Columbus. It is now located in the Visitor Center, a large open area that welcomes all of the Capitol's visitors. It is a new addition to the Capitol, Construction finished in 2008, so it's likely that the statue was located in Statuary Hall before then. A fun fact, I asked one of the tour guides where I might find it, and he was able to promptly direct me to its new location and told me that Pope was the man who led the uprising. And I responded that I had recently learned on your podcast about the rope, and the tour guide told me that he did not know that fact and was going to begin using it when tourists about asked about the statue. Uh, and then Ginger sent a photo of the statue. Uh, which is definitely not in the same place as some of the other photos I have seen of that yep. statue. Um, and then she recommends a future topic, which we may do. So I'm just going to leave that secret for Woo. now. Um, yeah, we got a couple of notes being like, oh, the statue's not there anymore. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know they moved the statue. <laughs> they did. The statue is now somewhere else. Uh, but thank you very much for writing to us, Ginger. Now yeah. other people going to the Capitol can go see the statue where it really is. Um, but it sounds like they, uh, if you ask in the place where it used to be, they know yeah, pretty they quickly know. where it went to. They can tell you. So if you would like to write to us, we are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and our Pinterest is pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our website, put the word revolution in the search bar, and you will find why was the American Revolution so revolutionary. You can learn all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Lynda.com. You can learn it at Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try Lynda.com free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash history stuff.